0: Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and Politics. We're talking today about Greg Bear's Darwin's Radio. This is a really interesting book for a variety of reasons. Now, before I start talking about things, I have things to actually show you today that are different from stuff that we've done in the past. What did you think of the book? Uh, what's, the, what's the general theme of the book? What do you, what do you, what's the general idea that's going on with Greg Bear's... Greg Bear comes from from, uh, from the physical sciences.
1: What I is th- his profession? It doesn't say in the back.
0: Uh, it doesn't say in the back. I believe he's got a... I, 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 I may be corrected by this. I could be wrong, but I believe he's got a PhD in physics. I think. I'll have oh. to find out... I'll have to... Uh, <coughs> I have to f- I'll find out more for you. I believe he has a PhD in physics. He writes an awful lot about physical science stuff in, in the in his science fiction. So but I believe I've read somewhere that he has a PhD in physics. I will find out for you. So Darwin's radio. Greg Bear. What's this all about?
1: But like an ancient virus that's evolving inside of humans that's existed there for millions of years that hadn't
0: been present An ancient virus that's been invol- evolving in humans that's been existing in there hundreds of I mean thousands of millions. years right?
2: Yeah really like M- yeah. hundreds
1: a since long in time
2: existence.
3: since existence.
1: What's the general plot What's the general well, The plot is that for some reason which most of us haven't gotten to yet um yeah, we're only
0: supposed to have read it the first couple hundred pages yeah, for
1: today. So, uh, for some reason, there's this virus, or there's this retrovirus that's already encoded in DNA, and something made it start coming out, and women keep having miscarriages, and um, that about covers it. Like Shiva or something? Yeah. The it Shiva was virus. Yeah. It was, it was something else. It was Sherva, and they chopped the R out for good measure. Oh, okay. I don't remember what shirt it stood why. for. it was a long acronym, and, and yeah, they're just confused
3: at this point. they're like what, what's going on? Yeah,
1: that's one thing in here, yeah, you gotta keep track of those acronyms. they bust out like n i h and h h s yeah. CDC,
0: yeah. I know. CDC, yeah. I know. Too. CDC. hey, yeah. It's a very, uh, pardon, pardon the pun, but it is a very pregnant novel for people to read. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. For, for, for people to read in Atlanta at Emory University yeah. because of the connection with CDC.
3: Uh, it's very descriptive. Sometimes you get lost in his words. He goes into like every little detail. Mm-hmm.
1: Which isn't a bad thing, but sometimes... You have to, like, go back and be like, what did I
0: just read? Well, what do you think about all of the concerns that, like, national security and CDC has with regard to the outbreak of a virus?
1: Right, well, I don't. I just thought it was kind of interesting that the CDC was playing it like a, you know, like the National Enquirer, you know, well, we need to break this slowly, get us more funding, we can just, you know, make this sound all impressive. I mean, yeah, there were a few women who had some miscarriages, but we got to make it sound big, you know, big so we can get money, and it was just kind of ridiculous. I mean, you don't really. I mean, I don't know. I guess you don't really think. I don't really think of the CDC as this, you know, political power play, or that they, you know, worry about having their funding cut back, especially after they just did that enormous renovation. I mean, and these people are, you know, they're acting like, well, you know, we have to, we have to make this virus come out big, and it's like it's a virus. It is what it is, but they're going to like publicize it big so that you know they get more money.
0: Mind you, when did it, When was this book? published 1999 so this is before 911 2000 we, this is before 911 before the terrorist incident it was also before the anthrax attacks through the mail oh yeah I remember that okay that so was it was before uh, it was before all of that and when biological weapons of mass destruction were th- thought of as a real possibility right after 9 one and the anthrax attacks were going on. I have some friends who work in CDC. I won't give any names or, you know, positions or anything like that that will tie them back. But it would be interesting to know w- what I was told about the plans. Should there be an outbreak of something like smallpox? I don't think any of you have been vaccinated for smallpox. Is that right? I think we have been
1: vaccinated for smallpox.
0: Yeah. so you've never had it cuz like, yeah. cuz it wasn't eradicated it's been eradicated they don't vaccinate for smallpox anymore
2: doesn't chickenpox like prevent you can get it.
0: yeah but i mean i've had the vaccination for smallpox and everyone you know older than whatever has uh, had a vaccination for smallpox but the disease doesn't exist anymore except in laboratories and in the you know in the cdc cdc and, and in russia and 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 uh, potentially places that have Designs on terrorist
1: weapons. Um, there was a, there was another book called The Hot Zone. Yes, which uh, which was really good about you know the CDC and how underground they have you know way down they have laboratories where they keep living cultures yep. of a lot of things that people think are eradicated <coughs> or things people wouldn't imagine are there. I mean like, yeah. you know right down the street from us they have Ebola, anthrax, yeah, anything you could think. I mean of? Th- there was a
0: debate about whether to try to kill off the last virus of in you know, all the laboratories of smallpox. And when it actually was debated, it was debated in the context of saying, should we destroy life? Well, you know, a virus, you're not really sure it's life in the first place. It, doesn't cons- it can reproduce, but it doesn't consume energy. So it's, it's questionable whether you actually want to talk about it as a life form. But on the other hand, that wasn't what I was concerned about. I was aghast that that's the debate. That's the level of the debate that they were talking about. Because that's not the issue at all. You can't ever assume that you've got the last virus. You are going you can't ever assume that somebody didn't hoard it away. And you can say, ah, nice and tidy, I burned the last virus, it's all gone. You know, wipe your hands off and say, good job, mission accomplished. But You can't say that. What actually is going to happen is somebody's going to come out with it, somebody hoarded it, and then that person has a terrorist weapon, and you have no stocks at all for which to use for combating it, to come up with a vaccine again, a new vaccine, to react to do whatever you need to do to combat it. If they modify the smallpox virus in some way, and you've eradicated all of your smallpox stock, uh, stock you're dead. You're just dead. And you're talking not just you yourself. You're talking about millions and millions of people. A large proportion of the population of your entire country is dead. And for defense reasons, you simply cannot eradicate a virus that has plagued humanity in the past for whatever reason. And when they were actually talking about that, I said, they're brain dead. They're absolutely brain dead. But this happens so much. I mean, did you see the stuff that came out in the New York Times a little while back? And everybody's chiming on it that they they found out that low-fat diets don't work. Did you see the, fi- the big headlines on low fat diets don't work? They don't stop heart attacks. They don't stop this. They don't, don't stop. Surprise that.
1: me to more with a new diet plan every five minutes.
0: So, this is a big study with like 10,000 participants and everything like that. And those are the he- headlines. And it's reported cr- incredible sources all over the place. And then, if you actually read the fine print, you find out that what they were calling low fat was 25 to 30 percent fat content, which is like astronomical. And then high fat was like 35 to 40 percent fat content which is like even more astronomical. And so what you're talking about is a really modest decrease in the fat content. And even the people that were supposedly trying to control their diet to 25% fat content, they were not able to hold it so well, and they were sipping to 27, 29, and that's what they were reporting, so who knows what was really happening. So, And the reality is, if you know, low-fat diets, if they're going to do anything, you're going to knock it down to like 5%. In fact, the, you know, the so-called Food Pyramid, the Food and Drug Administration had a Food Pyramid. They actually had a bunch of people come up with a new Food Pyramid that actually had a fat content somewhere around 5%, 5 to 10%. And they just said, politically, it's not going to work. The people aren't going to be able to go down to that. They like greasy burgers too much. And uh, Thank you, Hussein. And so they just threw it in the trash and came up with a new one. You know, science be damned. It has nothing to do with what's good for your health. It just that people want their, their their Big Macs, let them eat their Big Macs, to change the, the pyramid to fit where they want to eat. What's that? To the government, science always takes
2: second place to politics.
0: Oh, absolutely. Science always takes second place to, go- to politics with, with regard to the government. I mean, The government has been denying global warming and a zillion other things. But the reason I'm, I'm mentioning these is is not to spread it and go off on a tangent, but to show you what the government actually does with regard to... Biological type of stuff. It's the same type of story. They they think theatrically and they think in terms of what would be good politically. Well, if there was an outbreak of smallpox, I was told by my CDC contacts. I'm assuming they they were they were involved in what they were <laughs> in in discussions uh, the, the planning discussions. I'm assuming it's accurate. If there was an outbreak of smallpox, meaning one person gets it. And it's easy. You just take some smallpox stuff and go to a mall, and you sort of slime it on the railings of the escalator, <laughs> or just something, or put it in a perfume thing, and just go, let it spray out. One person gets it. Since the vaccinated society doesn't really exist anymore, you have a quarantine. Now I'm not talking about a quarantine of the person. I'm talking a national guard lockdown of the entire state. You can't go out of your house. <laughs> For you can't go to the grocery store, nobody can leave their house. I mean, talking house arrest for the entire population of the state, and nobody leaves the state or comes into the state until everything is under control. And you're talking months, and within a week or so, they'd start working on you know how to get food deliveries to people. But we're talking major lockdown. Well, what would that do to the economy? Imagine a couple smallpox people discovered in New York City. He's talking lockdown of the entire state of New York. That means no nothing going in and out. That means every single company in New York would say, we are moving, we're getting out of here, we can't risk high-density populations. All major companies would then remove to Wyoming, places low-density, and work telemarketing the entire thing, work everything over the Internet. You don't need to be in high-density places anymore. The World Trade Center was built on the idea that you had to physically be in the proximity of other representatives from other countries, in order to make trade. It doesn't matter anymore. Everything is connected with the internet, so it just simply you don't need the, those large trade centers in physical places, and people simply move out. So it'd be highly disruptive for the entire economy. So does the US government announce that? No, they're not telling you, look, if we find one smallpox case New York is history, or Atlanta and all of Georgia is history. If they did, what would be the disruptive events? Every company would simply say, we can't risk it anymore. We can't risk the possible disruption of our observations. they just evacuate New York. And I'm not talking about a radioactive bomb. We're talking bio- biology here. So anything that would you know, permanently or severely disrupt the economy, the companies would react to if they had wind of it. And so a lot of stuff goes on in CDC, plans that you don't hear about and they don't ever want you to hear about unless they actually have to do it. But that's but that's one of them. So this is very realistic, this novel, from the perspective of the discussions that go on in C D C. They really do talk about everything from how can we get more funding to what are we gonna do if push comes to shove and we need to quarantine the zillions of people. <laughs> I mean they they don't have any any bones about that type of stuff. So, well, what else? What else happened in this in this novel with regard to this bug, the Shiva bug, the Shiva virus? What's that all about?
3: Well, it's like, I mean, they have a miscarriage, but then there's another egg that's like
0: implanted or something. Yeah, the, the, but some of them—they don't all miscarriage, do they? The virus doesn't call all, cause all the babies to go, does it?
3: It's more, I think, the mutation than the actual. It's just the fact there's a mutation. They just don't know whether it's some virus or it's like some evolutionary process or I think they're just confused. they like, mutation?
0: Let's read a couple things. Mutations. Let's read a couple things. Let's go to page 76 and let's read on page 76 and 77. And this is in chapter 11 in Innsbruck, Austria. Okay, and um, what we have here is a conversation between Dr. Dr. Lang and Hertz. And they're talking about what the uh, CDC people have been, uh, would have been discussing with regard to this virus. It's a retrovirus. A virus... Everyone on page 76? hmm It's a retrovirus. A virus that reproduces by transcribing its RNA genetic material into DNA and then inserting it into the DNA of a host cell like HIV. It seems quite specific to humans. The reporter's eyebrows shot up. Is it dangerous? As dangerous as the AIDS virus? I've heard nothing that tells me it's dangerous. It's been carried in our own DNA for millions of years. In that way... At least, it's not at all like the HIV retrovirus. Well, how can our women viewers know if they've caught this flu? Well, the symptoms have been described by CDC, and I don't know anything more than what they've announced. Slight fever, sore throat, coughing. Well, that could describe a hundred different viruses. Right, Lang said and smiled. Mitch studied her face, her smile with a sharp pang. My advice is stay tuned. Then what is so significant about this virus if it doesn't kill and its symptoms are so slight? Well, it's the first H-E-R-V, human endogenous retrovirus to become active. The first to escape from human chromosomes and be laterally transmitted. What does that mean, laterally transmitted? That means it's infectious. It can pass from one human to another. For millions of years it's been transmitted vertically. passed from to to children through their genes. Well, do other old viruses, exi- viruses exist in our cells? The latest estimate is that it, that as much as one third of our genome could consist of endogenous retroviruses. They sometimes form particles within the cells, as if they were trying to break, down, break out again, but none of these particles have been efficient until now. Well, is it safe to say that these remnant viruses were long ago broken or dumbed down? It's complicated, but you could say that. Well, how do they get into our genes? (laughs) Now, very interesting. By the way, you should know that this is the latest technique for genetic engineering. That's how they put the genes in things. For example, cystic fibrosis has a cure that they've halted recently because it, it doesn't always work. What they do is they take the gene that's missing for cystic fibrosis when people have cystic fibrosis they have a gene missing. They take the gene and and put it on a virus and then they give the virus to the person with cystic fibrosis. And the virus literally inserts itself into the genome of the into the genes into the DNA of the of the person that's missing the gene. And the problem is that sometimes the virus, which apparently isn't the s- most cleverest of creatures, puts itself in the wrong spot, and when it puts itself in the wrong spot, it can cause side effects like leukemia, then death, things like that. But in many cases, it puts itself close enough for government work, and it stops. And it, you know it literally cures cystic fibrosis by, re- by fixing the genes on the level of the genes. So that's one of the primary ways they insert they insert genes. Now, genetic manipulation is very often done by viruses because the viruses are the little tools that go in that are small enough to actually get in to the genes and actually place themselves so that the genes are, are fixed. So if we can do it, don't you think it's natural that nature would be able to do it or some artificial way could be done at some point in time to cause it? Now, what happens if you have a retrovirus, or if you have a virus in our genes, if, and we put it there? Well, you can assume that nature by itself, or you know, entities or whatever, that nature by itself. So let's just talk nature. Let's, you can assume that nature by itself has been doing that all the time. I mean, we are the products of a few billion years of evolution. We're talking. The earth has been around for a long time. There have been millions and millions and millions, I mean hundreds of millions of years of life on this planet. Genes have been mixing and turning and twirling and doing all types of stuff. So there's been physical evolution with regard to the physical makeup of the planet and then there's been biological evolution with the genes sort of you know, splicing around. Well, the real question is, if we can make a virus insert a gene, well, then nature can be doing the same type of thing. There can be viruses all over the place. What happens when one virus decides to change? Well, then, you get. You, what, if you, what if you're doing a sentence and you have a sentence that's going along? Well, it's going along smoothly, and then suddenly it runs into a semicolon. Oh, Adol, you have too many semicolons. I've got to remind you. Do you I have to talk about semicolons. A bit. Let me talk about semicolons for a second, then we'll get right back to this. <laughs> semicolons are only used to join two independent clauses that could be totally standalone sentences. They're used instead of a comma and a conjunction like comma and or comma but. But when you use a semicolon, it is a very powerful form of punctuation. You can only use them once per essay, never twice. The reason is, the first clause before the semicolon is a setup clause. It sets you up like a boxer, a jab to the left. The second clause that comes after the semicolon is the knockout punch. Boom! Hits in the head. So the first clause sets you up, and then the second clause gives you the consequences of that setup, and knocks you flat. Never use a semicolon just for the heck of it. Pick your sentences when you use it, and make sure the first clause could stand alone as a sentence. Just try to read it. Make sure it's got a subject and a verb. Make sure that it's complete as a sentence by itself. Then make sure the other clause is complete as a sentence make sure there's no and in the middle because if you put an and there you must use a comma If it's comma and you cannot use a semicolon but if you have two independent clauses and you want to join them together you use a semicolon in your own work in one three-page essay make sure it never happens more than once and make sure you pick the sentence you want to do it. I want you to use semicolons but I want you to pick the times when you use them you want to take This science fiction stuff is very important. You have unusual, non-obvious stuff being brought to life and we're discussing in political reality. Pick that non-obvious conclusion and make a sentence out of it that has a semicolon so that that sentence drives it home. So you say, wow. So the reader, when they get it, they say, wow, that is a powerful point. You set them up with the first clause, boom, knock them dead with the second clause. That's when you use a semicolon. I love semicolons. But it's like, if you have something really powerful, you don't want to squander it. You want to use it at the right time, and use it rarely, the big punch. Okay? So, use try to use a semicolon in every one of your essays, but only once. Pick the sentence. And it's usually good to use it about two-thirds into the essay. Either you use it up front, first paragraph or second paragraph, where you're sort of making the point you want to drive the reader further into the paragraph or further into the essay or more likely as you use it at the end near the conclusion to make sure that your main point isn't missed that's where it's does it. that's really where it does the most good it's a little early to use it in the beginning but some people can use it in the beginning in special cases but traditionally think about two-thirds three-quarters through the essay that's where you want to have it Okay. please read through all of these comments on your papers also every single one of them I want you in writing is improving every single one of you and I want you to start really trying to focus on isolating what the unusual non-obvious component is for every single piece of science fiction really struggle to say what is that non-obvious thing and then imagine yourself having to go back to the dorms and tell people why you took this course. What was, Why are you taking that course? What's going on? Well, for example, I just... We just had a discussion about this. Well, what's so cool about that? I read the book. It's a cool book. Yeah, but you understand the significance of the implication of this to society. And then you explain it. And then the person... It should be one of those things where the person says, oh, wow, I never thought of that. That's the angle you want to pick for your essays. Okay? That's the angle. And when you summarize that is when you want to use a semicolon. <laughs> About two-thirds, three-quarters in. Okay? All right. Now, let's get back to this. The virus, the Shiva virus. It's natural to think that there would be these viruses in our history. You know, one of the great debates is going on right now, they had a big special, I think it was on public television yesterday, uh was it a story on Darwin that was on the Jim Lehrer News Hour, or was it something separate from that? I don't really remember. I was doing a lot of cooking and stuff like that during the Jim Lehrer News Hour, but I remember seeing something about, they were talking about Darwin. Well, Darwin himself was extremely frightened when he came up with his, his theory, of the evolution of the species, of the evolution of life, his evolution theory. He knew the implications that it would have on him. He sat on his theory for about 20 years. He was just frightened to do it. And the only reason he eventually published his major work was because he received a letter from another scholar who was talking about the same thing, and he got jealous, and he says, Damn, I've, been, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm not going to let him scoop me. So he finally just published the work, and then, then Darwinianism began. But he was terrified because of this idea that humans are... Really, God created individuals, and that we are specially designed, and there's nothing to say about evolution. I mean, we're not just products of genes combining in random ways, or even the survival of the fittest ways.
1: Well, when you get, he doesn't actually mention evolution until like the last, like the very last chapter of his book. Darwin's book. Yeah, Darwin's book. It's it's completely fluff all the way up to the end, and he finally, like, right at the end, gets it together and mentions evolution. What's going on? He was terrified. He was terrified. Well,
0: similarly with humans now, they're still debating that to this very end. It's been so long, and they're still talking about it. Now we have a situation where we can actually start fiddling with the actual genes the same way. And there's absolutely no reason to think that nature didn't fiddle with the genes all along this way in the first place. So when we when we look at this, the idea of Darwin's radio, what's the idea of the title, Darwin's radio?
2: Darwin so would probably be referring to like evolution. Yep.
0: Darwin's referring to evolution. And
2: radio is Transmitting.
0: Transmitting, that's right. Transmitting. Transmitting evolution from one point to the next. Now, how long were the dinosaurs around?
1: Millions of million years. years.
0: No, 150 million years or something like that. A long time. Well, one of the complaints that are made about evolution by the people who want to promote intelligent design or the creationist story is that there are missing links in the evolutionary history. There were things that happened where there are no clear fossil evidences. Of how did that happen? Where did that start? And the scientists who study evolution say, big deal, we've got 98% of the record. There's some missing spots. We have this, we need some bones. We need some more bones. It's a big deal, but the general theory is correct. But like science doesn't ever claim to have everything knocked down. I mean, give us a break. Give us some more time. We're we're, we're looking for those things. And but what you have with those missing spots sometimes is this, is a debate about, well, how did that species change? How did this happen in such a short time? Where is the connection? Where is the bone connection? Where is the fossil connection? And that produces something that they call punctuated equilibrium. It gets us back to our, equ- which our semicolon. It's a punctuation mark in the equilibrium record. Where normally you have random traces, of random changes going along, and you know the dinosaurs get a little bit different here, a little bit different there, or the mammals get a little bit different here, or a little bit different there. But suddenly, there's a punctuation mark in the historical record, and humans are walking upright
1: everything changes and it's, it's right. the counterpoint to the gradual evolution theory. The, the, the two competing theories of evolution were that there was punctuated equilibrium or that people just sort of gradually changed. And for a long time people thought that evolution was this gradual progression. Yeah. Like this picture on the front of the book they thought that people just sort of like mm-hmm. in a curve you know everybody got a little more upright until all of a sudden they were right. upright. But then there's the punctuated equilibrium theory which based on the fossil record is correct and says that Everybody was pretty much the same, and that the random genetic mutations were there, but then at some point they accumulated to, you know, tipping people over into the next evolutionary stage.
0: I like your phrase, tipping point. That's one theory that could cause for punctuated evolution. I think the other theory for
2: punctuated Go ahead. Evolution I'll, I'll say it again. The other theory I know for punctuated evolution is a change in the environment that forces
0: the thing, a change in the environment.
2: The dinosaurs were knocked out by a enormous change in the environment that they couldn't handle. But a ther- the theory is a lesser change in the environment could that a species wouldn't die out from could cause them to like have to have to modify to continue survival. So like a big change that a big change.
0: How about we rephrase it and say a stress, a That's stress. stress when species are put under stress changes can occur now there's a variety of mechanisms that could account for why those stress why those stresses could 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 create those those changes under certain stresses certain individuals with certain genetic anomalies would be able to adapt and they would survive and other ones wouldn't be able to so really two people that are pretty similar when you look at them, one might have a little bit of a genetic change, one might not have that genetic change. And if there's a stress in the environment, that's when the person that doesn't have the genetic change would f- fall through the cracks and well, die. Well, I mean,
1: one of, the, one of the best examples of that is people who are born and raised in climates that are very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, in Russia, people who are born and raised in Siberia, mm-hmm. who go down, you know, because it's a big deal in Russia to go summer on the Black Sea... And if you go, if you live in Siberia and you go somewhere on the Black Sea, y- you're dying. You're, you're <coughs> my dad spent a few months in Russia, um, and he said that just people who lived in Siberia and who would go down with their group to somewhere on the Black Sea were dying. They'd stay inside, they'd crank the air conditioner up. They couldn't stand the heat. They were sweating. They were sick. They were getting sick. They were. He said it was just awful, and that um, it's just environmentally, you know, your body is not adapted to living in a warmer climate. Yeah. And if you live in Siberia all the time, it never gets anywhere near the temperature it gets on the beaches by the Black okay. Sea. Hmm. And so, you know, and it's the same kind of thing, you know, that, that subtle manipulation in your body's chemistry, you know, between, you know, in a cold climate and a warm climate. Well, if we have a cold snap, the, I mean, like, you know, global cold, uh-huh, like ice yeah. age cold snap, the, the people in Siberia are obviously going to be much better adapted and equipped than, you know, the people who live in Hawaii or, you know, the Caribbean. That's a
0: good point. Actually, you're raising some very good points, because in your lifetime, in your lifetime, you're all around 20, so in your lifetime, I'm assuming you live to around 100, in your lifetime you will, without doubt, see a huge planetary change in the environment. The planet will be stressed. We are likely, in this time period of stress, likely to see events of punctuated evolution initiated in this hundred years, in this century. For example, just wait long enough. You won't. Maybe when you're 40 or 30, or maybe you're, uh, you know, by 70, or at least maybe 50, you will all be able to take a boat to the North Pole. I mean, there won't be a North Pole in the in the winter time, and I'm, I'm sorry, in the summertime, the ice will melt. The trajectories are now within 50 years, tops. The North Pole in the summertime is history. <laughs> There's just not going to be any ice there. The, the caps are melting, and. So you're young enough to be able to say that you'll see it. So this whole idea of Perry and others going to the Antarctic and the North Pole and whatever, you know, take a summer cruise. <laughs> you'll be able to see it. You won't be able to plant a flag, but you'll be able to throw a gumdrop into the ocean. Because, you know, there's no, there's no land under the North Pole. It's all ice. So that type of, that type of environmental change will have huge implications to climate change on this planet. You're talking a huge dumping of water into the planet and then you're also talking about major changes in the environment to do that as well. For example, the hurricane seasons that we have been seeing with Katrina, if the warming continues, those are milk toast. And you're talking major changes in in droughts and major changes in other aspects of our existence, and it, it's not going to be that much longer before we really start questioning whether the entire human population can survive it, or whether it's going to have to hunker down. And some people eventually start taking, start talking about whether there should be shelters, like buried cities, and whether the elite should be preserved for you know a thousand years or five hundred years from now, the so weather or not. So they're going to start. Yeah, it's very similar. They're going to start talking about, because when you get that much of a major disruption, you have to understand that the melting of the caps and the weather and stuff like that is just the tip of the iceberg, sorry to, to, to make <laughs> the pun. But the real question is then what happens to our food supply? If you start disrupting the, the, the everything is connected to everything else, everything is a social, everything is a system. So if you start disrupting the planetary environment sufficiently, the very first thing you have to say is, you know, starvation. You're, you're talking about serious, serious problems. Not just the idea of putting a new roof on your house because there's more rain in the hurricane season. You're talking about global disruption of the food supply. Then major migrations. You think illegal aliens coming from south of the border the way we have it now is going to be a big problem. You start disrupting the food supply in a major way, desertification of Mexico even more than it's got, you wouldn't be able to stop those aliens from coming in even if you put a machine gun every three feet along the entire border. They'll crash the gate and get in because there's no other choice. So the future is very, very dicey with regard to major changes in the environment. All of the theories that we now have in the environment suggest that it doesn't happen gradually. If you look at the geological record, major shifts, major shifts in climate change occur within a period of less than 100 years, often around 10. Now, we don't really know what's going to happen when global warming really, really, really kicks in. It may lead to a global ice age, because what may happen is just the reverse. What may happen is that the sea pumps where the hot water in the tropics rises, goes, for example, up the Gulf Stream towards Britain, and then keeps Britain warm, those places warm, and then the cold water, as it gets cold up north, sinks and travels at the bottom of the ocean down towards the tropics, that whole pump has a decent chance of shutting down completely. And if that happens, then there will be no movement of warm water and air towards the north, which would then produce a very ironic situation where global warming led to an ice age. So you get temporary warming followed by a huge freezing and the Earth turns into something like winter, which was the planet we just talked about with Earth the Lagoons Le left-handed darkness. All of those are stresses. I don't know which one's going to happen. Those are stresses which you will see in your lifetime, one or the other. I don't know which one's going to happen or both will happen. But the question is, what will that happen with regard to evolution? Physical evolution. Now, we're going to talk evolution in two ways now. But this what I wanted to introduce is this concept of punctuated, uh, punctuated evolution. And then let's talk about how this affects society, punctuated evolution. Because once you change our genes and change our society, you're talking about crises that we have to go through. sudden crises, you might call them. Let's go over to page 100. And this is in chapter 15. All right, this is Kay and Miller talking, Dr. Kay and and Dr. Miller. This is the bottom of page 100, okay? Kay thought of the talk with Judith about the symptoms that Shiva would cause. Miller was perfectly willing to continue talking over her silence. Everyone thinks that viruses, and in particular retroviruses, could be evolutionary messengers or triggers Or just random goads, Miller said. Ever since it was found that some viruses carry snippets of genetic material from host to host. I just think there are a couple of questions you should ask yourself, if you haven't already. What does Shiva trigger? Let's say gradualism is dead. We get bursts of adaptive speciation Whenever a niche opens up, new continents, a meteor clears out of the old clears out the old species. Speciation, does everyone know what that means? The radiation of species, meaning the genes suddenly start diverging and then you get new species mm-hmm. coming out. It happens fast in less than ten thousand years. Good old punctuated equilibrium. But there's a real problem. Where is all this proposed evolutionary change stored? Meaning if we do get... See, the historical record tells us without doubt punctuated equilibrium happens. That means you get rapid evolutionary change in a short period of time. It can't happen without the computer program being already there, available, to do it. The computer program is the genes. So the question that Greg Baer is asking is, where is all this? Where is all this coding stored that suddenly a trigger can happen, a stressing of the environment, and suddenly you get the indigo children? That's a big thing that's going around on the internet these days. Children, there's a whole group of children that seem to be quite unusual these days. Just do a search on the indigo children. It's a it's a huge deal these days. Even traditional medical practitioners are, are noticing some differences among some a large body of young kids with all strange types of, uh, uh, you know, unusual capabilities. And, uh, and and the real question is, if we're, if we're entering a period of stress, is it possible that yeah. some genes were triggered?
3: Maybe that's part of it. Maybe global warming is going to cause the population to get reduced to a stable level, and the people who can survive the future will...
0: That's a big issue. The people who can survive. Maybe,
3: maybe, yeah, maybe just... Nature's way of reducing the human population. So. Or
0: changing the human population. Yeah. Let's keep reading. Uh, where is all this proposed evolutionary change stored? And what he's, what's really being asked is, where's all the computer code stored, or the gene code stored? An excellent question, Kay said. Miller's eyes sparkled. You've been thinking about this. Well, who hasn't, Kay said. I've been thinking about virus and retroviruses contributors to, contributed to genomic novelty. But it comes down to the same thing. So maybe there's a master biological computer in each species, a processor of some sort that totes up possible beneficial mutations. It makes decisions about what, where, and when something will change. Makes guesses, if you will, based on success rates from past evolutionary change. But what triggers a change? Well we know that stress-related hormones can affect expression of genes. This evolutionary library of possible new forms, Miller grinned broadly. Go on, he prompted. Responds to stress produced hormones, Kay Kay continued. If enough organisms are under stress, they exchange signals, reach a kind of quorum, and this triggers a genetic algorithm that compares sources of stress with a list of adaptations, evolutionary responses. Evolution evolving, Saul said. The species with an adaptive computer can change more rapidly and more efficiently than hackneyed old species that don't control and select their mutations that rely on randomness. Let's talk dinosaurs. Give me a species of dinosaurs that's still available to be seen in a primordial soup today. Alligators, alligators and crocodiles. Excellent. You see a bunch of alligators and crocodiles sliming about in the river. You are looking at a primordial scene. You are looking at a scene that's right out of the past hundred and you know some odd millions of years ago.
2: Also, the What's shark, that? also sharks haven't changed very much since the dinosaurs. The um, there's
1: a bird or something. What's that? There's type Yeah, there's type of a type of bird. Is. Some birds. And there's a... what about whales?
0: Oh so yeah. they're mammals. But, but yeah, they they've been animals. around for a long while. And sharks definitely go way back in the evolutionary time. But alligators and crocodiles, they're like right back with Tyrannosaurus rex. They're right back with the with the ancients. Well, some by the way, when the dinosaurs died off, they didn't die off in a month, you know. The latest theory with the dinosaurs is that when the meteor hit and there was the equivalent of a nuclear winter, smoke everywhere, blocking off light, killing off vegetation, a huge number of dinosaurs died. But a whole bunch of them survived. It took 10,000 years for all the dinosaurs to go. It wasn't like... I mean, the... The soot settled down within a few months. The fires that were you know, cast globally, they, they all went out. But what happened was you had the interruption of an ecosystem. If you go to a lake that has eight species of fish and take one species out, come back a few months later, you have two species of fish and you say, what, did I, what, what are you talking about? There were eight? I took one out? There should be seven. But what happens is you take one species out, one species relies on another species which relies on another species which relies on another species. For example, if you were to, through poaching or whatever, kill off the hippopotamuses or the hippopotami in East Africa, you'd get mass starvation in East Africa. And you'd say, well, what are you talking about? The East Africans, they don't eat hippopotami, but you see every single night when it's cool, The hippopotamuses or hippopotami leave the water and they eat tons of vegetables. I mean tons of vegetables. Do you ever go to the zoo and see them feed? I mean they are real they got big mouths. And then they go back into the water during the day when it's hot. And what do you think they do with all that food they eat? They poop it out. And behind the butt of every hippopotamus is tons of fish and they're waiting for lunch and the hippopotamus poops out whatever he's been eating or she's been eating the fish eat it and then the fish are well fed those of fish are actually eating the vegetables the plant matter that's surrounding the lake on the surface being brought to them by the hippopotamus so what happens then to the east africans the east africans then go out with boats and collect the fish and they eat the fish and so you're talking tilapia you're talking nile perch you're talking great food But on the other hand, if you take out the hippopotamus, the fish die. And then the East Africans start starving. Do you get the idea? So what happened with the dinosaurs was that you had a disruption of some of the species. 10,000 years later, the species collapsed. The cascading collapse finally settled down. And the dinosaurs were gone. Except for a few that could adapt, like the alligators and the crocodiles.
1: Did you know that hippopotami are incredibly dangerous creatures? They are very they're very dangerous. They're my People think hippopotamuses are like the cutest things ever. Well, not real ones, but people okay. like to idealize hippopotami. Yeah. Man, hippopotami are dangerous. They
0: actually kill more people than lions or anything Yeah, they're, they're, they're,
1: they're very, very dangerous. Lion. Well,
0: that's because you get close. I mean, I'm not supposed to get close. And what they do is they tip massive. the boats over and they... Yeah, and I mean, they're, they're
1: they not <laughs> some tiny, massive creature. Oh, yeah people but people just don't think hippopotami are dangerous. But There's
0: a movie with, I believe it's Gregory Peck great movie about about Africa and he actually wanted his boat he was actually encouraging his boat his canoes that were being paddled by it's an old black and white movie paddled by Africans East Africans to uh, get close to the Hippopotami right where they were thrashing about well the Hippopotami eventually tipped over the boat and the camera people were terrified and one of the Africans got you know pretty badly mauled up Gregory Peck was apparently uh you know, quite concerned about the whole thing. Anyway, it was a, it was a. It's, it's a movie. You can still see the movie, but the filming is was very dangerous. But uh, I think everybody survived. I believe in that particular case. But a lot of times they don't.
1: The Gregory Peck. Was that? They couldn't have eaten Gregory Peck.
0: <laughs> they didn't. The hippopotamuses didn't go after Gregory Peck. He survived. But anyway, in the movie, I think he, he dove in and saved somebody or something.
1: <gasps> no, but I'm sure it was epic.
0: Yeah, it was epic. It was epic. Okay. Anyway, so this idea of punctuated equilibrium, does everyone, does everyone get the... In order for us to get to the social stuff, the social implications of it, we have to at least understand the biological concepts of this punctuated equilibrium.
2: Model the yes. Take off the species at the top of the chain.
0: What if you take the species at the top of the chain? Well, if the species at the top of the chain in the in the grosser sense poops, and that feeds the stuff at the bottom of the chain.
2: Except, like, for example, in modern society, if say a retrovirus was to come along that specifically targeted humanity and wiped humanity out. And that's like a possibility. Well, if happen happens, we'd lose cat, like the cows and the domesticated animals wouldn't be able to survive because they've come to rely too greatly on us. Except for the most part, the ecosystem would go on without us because we're like at the very, very top.
0: Well, and Edward O. Wilson would say, from our discussion of last week, that you would then have a change an evolutionary change, eventually where another species, not a humanoid species, but another species on the planet, would eventually develop the evolutionary advantage of intelligence. Well, the
1: thing is, if you think about it, humanity is a really weird example of that because we control so many aspects of so many different food chains, but, I mean, if you take it on a much simpler level, I mean, just talking about, you know, like a hawk eating, you know, fi- or eating like fish in a river who eat, you know, other stuff... If you take out the top predator, the first thing that happens is the next year down starts expanding because there's nothing to thin its population. Mm-hmm. And I know that in some places... Causing a crisis. Causing a crisis. And in some places it's been a big deal uh, <coughs> in the Midwest where they had outlawed uh, deer hunting mm-hmm. in some places. And there were some places where they also outlawed something else, I can't remember, fox hunting or coyote hunting or something, okay. and the populations just exploded because no one was thinning the population, no one was keeping it in check. And so that's why you have deer season. Deers come into season so they can reproduce during, and you can't kill deers who are younger than something, and they gotta be way this much. And the point is that you gotta let, you have to keep the population in check, but you don't want it to expand too greatly by removing all of its predatory.
2: Except, like, originally before we started to mellow the nature had balances and checks its own.
1: well yeah but the thing is we but do do you really want you know lions or you know running around your woods outside of your house or would you rather have deer and have to go out and hunt a few
2: well I'm saying that if humanity was wiped out then there would be an immediate crisis as it expanded but the crisis would last for 10 years maybe before nature reintroduced a balance like a wolves from some... Night. Well, you, if
0: you're talking about the elimination of humanity, you're talking about something similar. There's more human protoplasm on the planet now than there ever was of any single species ever in the history of life on the planet Earth. So you're talking about something comparable to the destruction of the dinosaurs. And that really had a long time to work itself out. Not, not ten years. But Go ahead. But
2: I'm saying that within a closed ecosystem... Like the deer thing you're talking about, yeah. another predator would come eventually. Yeah, maybe not ten years, but within a period of time.
0: Yeah, within a period of time.
2: A predator would come that would start to thin the rest of the deer, and nature would reestablish a balance. Yeah. So, like for the majority of the thing, because humanity is such a thin, like we're such a high-level species yeah. that it would affect less it would less of an effect than if you like wiped well, out a
1: fish well one, know, well one of the interesting things about that is that if it was a virus that wiped us out, for instance, you know, just talking about viruses in this book, if it was a virus that wiped us out, you wouldn't have all of the other creatures being wiped out as well. I mean, in an ice age with dinosaurs, not only the dinosaurs died, there were a lot of other things that died too. And if you wiped out humanity with a virus Everything else would still be there, so it wouldn't be such a. You wouldn't need such a long period of time for re-speciation. And
0: well, you know, you're all talking about another predator, another king of the hill type species becoming dominant, even with the evolution of intelligence eventually in another species. But in the short term, the predator that may set Things back in equilibrium may be a bacteria or a virus. Meaning, once the human species becomes stressed, it may become more vulnerable to certain types of diseases. And so, the winnowing down of that population or the changing of the population or whatever happens, even to the animals, to surviving animals, may be affected by predators that we don't see, that we can't see, that would simply kill off all the excess cattle or kill off all the excess deer population, kill off XYZ, there still there's some type of balance in that way. Because you have to understand if there's an overpopulation for example of the deer supply like you just suggested, well the deer, they get stressed. And what happens when they get stressed? They're not enough to eat? They become vulnerable to disease. Well, you know, that is the first predator that comes along, the disease <laughs> predator. So we, it's that possibility as well. But these are good points before we run out of time let's go over to a page 104 and let's go to this is chapter 15 again page 104 and this is Saul talking with Dr. K finally he says on page 104 uh, Saul says make it clear K what, that's what you're good at so she explains it well K frowned Everyone on page 104? Okay, mm-hmm. chapter 15. Well, Kay frowned, that's the way the human brain works, or a species, or an ecosystem for that matter. And it's also the most basic definition of thought. Neurons exchange lots of signals. The signals can add or subtract from each other, neutralize, or cooperate to reach a decision. They follow the basic actions of all nature cooperation and competition. Symbiosis, parasitism, predation. Nerve cells are, the n- are nodes in the brain and genes are nodes in the genome competing and cooperating to be reproduced in the next generation. Individuals are nodes in a species and species are nodes in an ecosystem. Saul scratched his cheek and looked at her proudly. Kay waggled her finger in warning, the creationists will pop out of the woodwork and crow that we're finally talking about God. We all have our burdens, Saul sighed. Miller talked about Shiva, closing the feedback loop for individual organisms, that is, individual human beings. That would make Shiva a neurotransmitter of sorts, Kay said. Saul pushed closer to her, his hands working to describe volumes of data let's get specifics humans cooperate for advantage forming a society they communicate sexually chemically but also socially through speech writing culture molecules and memes we know that scent molecules pheromones affect behavior females in groups come into estrus together men avoid chairs where other men have sat women are attracted to those same chairs we're just refining the kinds of signals that could be sent. What kinds of messages and what can carry the messages? Now we suspect that our bodies exchange endo- endo- endogenous virus, just as bacteria do. Is it really all that startling? Kay had not told Saul about her conversation with Judith. She did not want to take the the edge off her fun just yet, especially with so little actually known, but it would have to happen soon, she sat up. What if Sheba has multiple purposes? She suggested. Could it also have bad side effects? Well, what are we talking about here that's so interesting? What do you see here? What's the? We're talking now about social stuff. What can you read into this thing? What is Greg Bear talking about with regard to social stuff that's, that's in this? Is it just biology he's talking about, or what else is he talking about here? There's a real strong social issue here going on. Well, when he talks about things like men avoid chairs where other men have sat, that there's pheromones, people communicate sexually, chemically, and socially, molecules and means. What? What is he blurring the lines between?
1: blurring the lines between like what's genetic and what's
2: behavioral
0: yeah he's blurring the lines between behavioral which the traditional way of thinking about it is we are in God's image and that we can think our way out of any problem when we are controlling our own destiny we are in control of our behavior now he's blurring the lines between behavior and and genes
1: but but is he really? Because in that paragraph, that whole thing about men avoid chairs where the men sat when they're attracted to the same chairs—it's a psychological thing. I mean, that's that's not necessarily a genetic thing as much as it is a predisposition that heterosexual males are going to be attracted.
0: What causes that predisposition?
1: Genetics. It's neurobiology. Well, I mean, yes, fundamentally, fundamentally, but also, don't you? But I mean that right there is an ongoing debate. I mean, it's kind of like the debate about homosexuality. Is it genetic or is it a, a, a personal choice? Well, you're... Excellent. You're, you're, I mean, you're getting right here to the same thing. I mean, is it genetic that men avoid those chairs? I mean, you, you're, you're arguing different debates. You're arguing whether men are heterosexual based on genetics or based on, pre, uh, based on choice. But then I'm saying the reason that they would choose those chairs is because they're heterosexual. Now, whether you say one or the other, psychologically, well, their predisposition that to they're
2: women, they're women. If a man did probably... Going back to the whole evolution thing, you can argue back from just the. This is like the last vestige we have of. Like, uh, territory. Pir- pir- <coughs> if somebody else has sat here, then it's kind of like their territory now, so you going there constitutes a threat and invasion. Like, it's. The question. Within our culture, it's useless, but it's still a. Har- arc back to. Like, our past that could soon just be creeping in there.
0: This is excellent. This is excellent. This adults You're raising some very profound points. The question is, is there anything that we think that does not have a genetic component to it?
1: Well, fundamentally, you can take everything back to genetics. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything everything c- can go back to genetics because, I mean, if you take a course in psychology, I mean, fundamentally, it gets down to, you know... People have this, you know, urge for, oh, there's this guy who made a pyramid of basic needs. You start, you got to fulfill your basic need for this and that, and then you can move on to your, you know, needs for personal expansion and things like that. But you got to have food and rest and shelter and love. And, well, I mean, the same sort of thing, you can just take that right back to genetics. You can say, you know, the fundamental reason we all work, you know, to get food and shelter and stuff like that is a genetic need, is, you know, your body's genetic um, code.
2: To pay the devil's advocate again, though, like writing, you like being here at university. That isn't genetic; it's cultural.
1: Richard Darwin, or, um, Dawkins. Do- Richard Dawkins. Dawkins would disagree. He would say that the reason that we're here is because genetically our genes are saying, "Well, you know, the best way to get passed on to prove attractive to a mate, to survive in society, to do those things which will help you pass your genes on, what, is to get an education."
0: Let me ask you a question.
2: Mm.
1: Not that I think my genes think or anything, <laughs> mind you. I mean, I, okay. but is it, but Let, I
2: mean,
3: do genes affect like mindset? I mean, that, that's the question I was going to ask you.
0: Let's think in terms of slavery. It wasn't too long ago that the entire Roman Empire was built on slavery, and we had slavery here in the United States. Slavery was widespread, but slavery now is really passe in the human species. It's out of fashion. It doesn't really work. And it's really hard to think there is actually still a lot of slavery that goes on. There's sexual slavery, and there actually is some places in the world where actual physical slavery still goes on. But there's some in the Sudan, and um, Madagascar has some issues. I mean, there's some various places. But in, in general, in terms of the whole human species, slavery is out. Now, you could say that we just consciously decided it was a bad deal. It shouldn't happen. But on the other hand, what about the possibility that the use of a slave culture eventually caused great stresses and that our minds became changed genetically to more easily accept the idea that we do not have to genetically evolve, or actually not genetically, but conquer our neighbors through physical force in order to in order to succeed in the Darwinian march of evolution. Meaning we don't have to conquer our neighbors and enslave them. We can go to their door, knock on their door, and say, would you like to trade?
2: That argues like the present interpol- international political thing that up till recently, the whole, like, main basis of power for any nation was its military strength, its military supremacy. But more and more recently, that's turning into a trade thing, like, now people, now the nation's power isn't determined so much by its military, but more by its economic capability.
0: That's right. Now, these are ideas. Now, the question is, our, the question, the real, the million-dollar question is, our current physical genetic structure that allows us to think along these lines, is it different in some way? Than the genetic structure of humans a thousand years ago that did not think so easily along those lines. For example, could you take a bunch of humans from five hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, bring them up to the current time period, and have them just be normal Democrats and Republicans?
1: Well, if you think about it, <laughs> would they would they resist it? Would there be a problem? Well, I mean, just I mean, talking about that slavery example, right? If you think about it, people have an innate tendency, which may be genetic, to resist an external locus of control. People want to believe they're in control of their own lives. So right there, it's genetically unfavorable for slaves to be slaves because they, they don't control their lives. It's a, it's, it's a stress on them. It's, it's uh, In psychology, it's if you believe that you do not have an internal locus of control, if you believe you're controlled externally, it's a physical stress on you, and it causes physical symptoms. And but if we're talking about stress, to change genetics, then...
0: But over time, there was a fundamental shift in the way humanity thinks. I'd
2: actually argue that slavery may not have so much been eradicated totally as altered. But now you've got the sweatshops you've got exploitation yes. of the third
0: world you still have exploitation but of a, of, a, of a altered difference. nation nature
2: because now like if maybe the political climate the humans brains had to change to point where out and out like, total control was less
3: seen hmm. but even slavery wasn't like I mean, we can't say slavery was widespread. Every person in the world, every empire, every society was practicing it.
0: No, but a huge proportion of the population of the earth could contemplate it.
1: What if it became genetically unfavorable for those people? I mean, the people who were running slaves. Like, let's just talk about the Civil War in the United States, which was very recent. But, I mean, if you think about it, the people who, were, who had the slaves in the South needed them for their economy, right? Mm. The North didn't. The North didn't depend on slavery for its economy, right? They were manufacturing goods, the South was providing raw materials, so the North didn't directly depend on slavery for its economy, so those people, you know, are, they don't need slavery. At the time of the At the, Civil war. At the time of the Civil War, they didn't need slavery in the North. The people in the South did. Well, people in the North thought it was wrong, so they had this giant war, and in the end, the South, they didn't, the South couldn't revert to slavery after the Civil War because they had newer ways to do things.
0: And the Civil War was a crisis, a seldom right. crisis in a sense. Now The real question is, what we're really raising from Greg Bear's work is, are all these things simply people deciding, hey, it's time, or are there genetic changes that allow us to think in those ways? For example, if we could take this class and use a time machine and go back in time to the time of the pharaohs, could you convince anybody to vote? <laughs> I is mean, it, what, I mean, I'm not talking about the culture now. I mean, physically, would you have a difficult time literally getting them to think that way? The questions that Greg Beer is asking is: Do stresses in the environment, variously, variously manifested, produce physiological changes in the way we think?
1: Well, I mean, according why to, not? According I, to Dawkins, yeah. your genetics and your thought are, are indistinguishable. I mean, the people who, were, who lived under the Pharaohs lived under a theocracy. Yeah. Or not a theocracy. A, it, was, what, it was
3: religious control.
1: It was, it was religious control. So. The pharaoh was a god, or was you know one slight step down, and so those people. It's completely against any furtherance of their genetic makeup to 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 want to oppose that. I mean, the pharaoh was a deity. So if you're going, the you're real going question, to oppose God, the real is, question
0: is. Were they f- were their were, th- were their genetics such that they even could have thought differently? But is That's it, is, the real it, question. is it really
3: genetics or is it just we've had the same genetics? it's just nature has thrown us a curve and we, our mindset. The
0: creationists would say the genes are the same. Mm-hmm. It's just that we have changed. The evolutionary people, the evolutionists, would say it's possible that the genes themselves change. And what Greg Bear is re- is raising is one mechanism by which that could have happened. Now l- we, we run out of time, so let me just say one thing. What we're going to do next... This is Thursday, so what we're going to do on Tuesday... Now, next week is not no. spring break, no, right? No, we the week video. after, okay. So we're going to finish the book, so make sure over the weekend you finish the book. And pick out your favorite passage, okay, so that I can go around the room again and say, what is your favorite passage? That was great when we did that last time. I then am going to bring in also a series of crises that, that major academics have, have thought about over the period. Economic crises political, social crises. And then what I'd like to actually ask you is to think about the possibility that these crises, which seem to produce like Selden crises in, our, in, our, in, our, in the history of our species, in the evolution of our culture, may in fact be a result of stresses, as the crises are described. And if, the, if that's the case, why should stresses affect all other aspects of the genes but not affect the way we think? I, there's no logical reason why it shouldn't also affect the hard wiring of the way we think. But, isn't but
3: it'll be something to think about. Go ahead. But don't the stresses affect the way we think? I mean, I mean, couldn't it be that our genes are the same, but just because of situations in nature, we've had to change our mindset? I mean, this the is the same a great person. debate. This is, you're
0: right now in the debate between evolution versus creationism. That's exactly the debate. And what we're actually saying, we're actually entering a new element that we can get only really through the speculative thought of science fiction that this new element may be affecting literally our capabilities of thinking new thoughts. It's a fascinating idea. Okay, look. Have a good weekend. Finish the book and see
2: you on Tuesday.